So today what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about that. I've entitled this today's Beast System and How to Overcome It. Now keep, keep in mind, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. Uh, you've heard the phrase, history repeats itself. You know, there's a part of that that is so true. And today we're going to look back all the way to the book of Revelation and begin to uh, unpack some things related to beast systems that go all the way back, of course, to the book of Daniel. The writer, John, is drawing his imagery and ideas from the book of Daniel. Book, the book of Daniel is drawing them from these empires that existed prior to Daniel's day, such as Babylon, which is one of the topics of the book of Revelation. So as we unpack this, understand the backdrop of the book of Revelation is in fact the Torah and the prophets. It's all connected. And God is informing us in every generation how to interact and relate to and even overcome oppressive systems. So the book of Revelation gives us a blueprint for what to do when empires become beastly systems that are filled with immorality, corruption, and bent on subjugating us with their evil agendas. And if followed, if followed, the blueprints lead us to victory and freedom. If neglected, we become enslaved and tormented and sometimes even murdered by these beastly kingdoms. Look at Afghanistan. Look at what the new government's doing right now with believers overnight what's happening. That is a beast system. That is the spirit of Antichrist. So today we're going to look at some of these bigger topics as it relates to the nations and specifically our nation. So let's start with Babylon. Babylon is the mother of all godless tyranny. That's where it all begins. So in Revelation chapter 18, we're going to make our way down uh, if we don't get through it, we'll pick it up next week. But wow, what an exciting read. Revelation chapter 18. John says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, who is he referring to? Babylon the Great. Because if you read the book of Daniel, it's the first of his empires. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, if you'll remember. See, the Babylon of his day was the superpower in the world. And of course, it became so corrupt and so absolutely oppressive that God would intervene to set his people free. But this is symbolic now of all empires that become corrupt. Keep in mind that Babylon in John's day is not a reference to this earlier superpower. That superpower already fell. It fell to the Persians in 539 BC, some 600 years plus before John's time. So when he says fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, he's not talking about the first Babylon. This is code for something else, right? I mean, obviously, John is using the term Babylon as a figure of speech. Now, many, many scholars say 
that what John is actually referring to is Rome. But instead of using the word Rome, he uses the word Babylon. Why? Why would he do that? Probably for a variety of reasons. Number one, he's reaching back to the first Babylon who becomes a type and shadow for all other empires gone bad. And also keep in mind that if you spoke against Rome in John's day, it cost you your head. He was already on the island of Patmos because he was speaking out against the Roman authorities. So some scholars point out that what John's doing is using Babylon as a code in reference to Rome because if he came out and said Rome, it'd be worse for him than the island of Patmos. They'd have his head on a platter. Okay, so John's using this term uh, cryptically, probably in order to keep himself alive. So when you look in the book of Revelation and come across the term Babylon, keep in mind, Rome is in view. This is what John is trying to prep the believers for, an empire gone bad that's turning on them and persecuting them. The big question is this, if Rome, if Rome can become a Babylon and then later be taken down by God with horrific judgments, breathtaking violence, can other nations also rise up and become Babylons today? And if so, will God not take them down too? Yes, because history repeats itself. And if we don't learn from history, we're destined to repeat it. And the nations are not learning from history. And so the saga continues on. And what is written in the book of Revelation was for John's hearers in his day and also intended for all other generations when empires rise up and go bad. So how does a nation become a Babylon? Verse 2 says this, she has become a dwelling place of demons. John, in reference to Rome, is saying that the Roman Empire has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, it'd be real important, we don't have time to go back and look at this uh, terminology unclean and unclean spirits in order to understand what this is all about and the demons that are found throughout the Tanakh and the backdrop in Enoch about the demons and how they interact with this world. We don't have time for that. Suffice it to say, Rome is filled with demonic influence and through that influence is now persecuting the people of God. She has become, which means there was a point in her rising up that she was not a Babylon. See, God, God says to the nations in Jeremiah, if you'll walk in my ways, I will establish you and bless you. But if you walk against me, contrary to me, I will uproot you and, and dismiss you as a nation. So here's Rome rising up and then getting too powerful, becoming corrupt, and now, now being associated with Babylon. Now let me talk just a little bit about the realm of demons. She has become a dwelling place of demons. For whatever reason, she fell into a place in which demons then began to gather around and influence her culture, her society, every institution in her midst. How does that happen? 
What is it that draws demons? Now, I think it's important if we look at the natural realm to relate it to rats. Rats are like demons, right? How do you get rid of a rat infestation? If you have a business and you got rats, how do you get rid of the rats? Do you, do you, do you use poison? Do you use traps? No, that doesn't work. Use poison, they keep coming. Use traps, they keep coming. How do you get rid of rats? You got to figure out what's drawing them. And you know what draws them nine times out of 10? Garbage. Garbage. If you're not processing and removing your garbage from your business, from your plant, they'll continue to come. They're feeding off the garbage. But if you'll dispose of the garbage appropriately and get rid of it, the rats won't come. There's nothing for them to eat. That's the same with demons. You can't rebuke a demon and command to leave if you're not dismissing from your life the very thing that's drawing the demon. Get rid of the garbage and the demons will leave. So what happens with nations is they begin to go astray in their greed and their immorality and so forth. And as they do that, the demons come and then the demons inflame them, confuse them, and bring about more and more corruption until they're filled and they become a dwelling place of demons. This is what happened to Rome. Demons, they come because sin is not processed appropriately and removed. You, you still sin today. I still sin today. God's not saying be perfect, never sin. He, he, he knows that we're going to sin. He's saying handle your sin responsibly. Bring it to the cross. Humble yourself, cry out to me for deliverance. That's how we get rid of our garbage. That's how we deal with the garbage in our life. And if we do that, there's always mercy and blessing. But when we ignore that and allow that sin to go on unchecked, that's when we draw the demons, both, both individually, personally, and also as a nation or a culture. So what about the nations today? Let's talk about this. I want to keep this real general so we don't get censored too quick. So we're just going to speak generally. You read between the lines. So what about a nation that legalizes sensuality? A nation that legalizes and facilitates immorality, creating billions and billions of dollars of revenue every year. What about a nation that produces and distributes immorality the Greek term, pornea, pornography, if you will, that's where we get our English term. What about a nation that produces and distributes immorality from sea to shining sea and then exports it to the nations, fueling human trafficking of young men and women, boys and girls around the globe? Has that nation not become a Babylon? And what about a nation that redefines biblical marriage and the family to include abhorrent and perverted forms that God says are abominations? The family unit is the basis of government. The family unit becomes the basis of a neighborhood, a community, a town, a city, a state, a nation, right? If you fundamentally change the family unit, you will have, in effect, changed the entire nation. Deconstruct and change the family unit, and you will have fundamentally changed the nation 
from what it was to something new, like a Babylon. What about a nation that has perverted human sexuality and is now teaching that to our children in the public school systems? What about a nation that legalizes and systematically sickens the entire culture, including all of its institutions, with gender dysphoria? What about a nation that demands we return to systematic racism everywhere when, when we, by teaching everyone to treat each other by the color of your skin rather than the content of your character? That pits us, that divides us and pits us against each other. Think about that, right? Teaching little boys and little girls to prejudge each other based on the sins of their ancestors will create nothing but hatred and violence in our future. What about a nation that teaches everyone to cover their neighbor's wealth? What about a nation that condones and encourages civil unrest, the destruction of private property, looting, violence, even rape and murder? What about a nation that inspires lawlessness and mob rule as she demands the defunding of police and military institutions? And what about a nation that justifies the murder of the carnage of 60 million innocent, defenseless human beings in the wombs of their mothers? I know, I know. They're not human. But isn't that what their fathers and their mothers said when they were killing Jews in Nazi Germany? that the Jews were not fully human, and that's how they justified genocide? Have we not done the same thing with life in the womb? Oh, it's not human. <laughs> what else would it be? It absolutely is human, and our hands are stained with blood. What about a nation that does all these things and then turns on believers and begins to harass, oppress, and persecute Believers for simply being believers and wanting to follow the Messiah. That nation has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Yes, a Babylon is a superpower that exports her sins to the nations. Notice what John says in verse 3. He goes on to say, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. We, we have proudly distributed for profit all of our filth and defilement to the world. The elites of the world love it. They buy it. They distribute it among their people. And the sex trade explodes around the globe. Think about that for a moment. Verses 4 and 5. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Come out of her. Come out of her come out of her perversions, come out of her because she's morally bankrupt. Her values are absolutely in contrast to the values of the king. Come out of her pagan ways. God says, don't participate in her sins because I'm going to judge her. And the judgment I'm bringing is going to be terrifying. And it's not intended for you. Come out of her. 
What that implies is this. If you don't, you'll receive the plagues that were intended for her. You'll participate in the plagues that were for her, not you. Don't do that. God is not going to be, a, be mocked. What a man soweth, that also shall he reap. God loves you enough to call you out. And if you refuse to call, you know, it's like, it's like if, he, if he was going to like torch an entire area and he tells his people, get out, get out. If you stay in that area, what do you think? The fire's not going to touch you? Of course it will. You say, God would never do that. Of course he will. That's why he told you to come out to begin with because the fire is coming. It's coming. And if you have ears to hear, listen to what he's saying. He's going to bring all kinds of judgments to her. He's done it over and over and over from the days of Babylon of old to this very day. You can see his hand throughout history. He's done it over and over and over. And our nation is ripening up for horrendous judgments from heaven above. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. He goes on to say in verses 6 through 7, Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her to to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. To the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I'm not a widow. And we will never see mourning. See, the pride of Babylon was... You can't touch me. The elites were saying, you can't touch us. We're going to do what we're going to do, and no one's going to stop us. And we're invincible. We've got the power and the wealth and the laws. We are in control. And God's saying, really? Really? Because I'm going to shake you and break you and uproot you. And God says in this passage to his people, I mean, this is one of the weightiest interpretations of the text is that when he says, pay her back double, the reference is his people, because in the previous verse, the subject matter is his people, come out of her, my people. And then he says, pay her back, which implies that he's saying that when I pour out judgments, you get to join me with paying her back for all the things that she did to all of you and to the world in which we live. Pay her back. Now, you think of Egypt and the Exodus and all that took place, and you begin to get a picture of how God brings judgment to a nation. Verse 8, For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence, mourning, and famine, and she'll be burned out with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. He's going to bring plagues of pestilence. The Greek word is thanatos. It means death. He's going to bring death. There's going to be lots of death, dead people everywhere. Think of Egypt, right? This is God. God's saying, I'm going to come to the nation who's abandoned me and has hurt my people and is hurting my world in which I created, refusing to repent. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring death, widespread death. Now, we translate it pestilence because Pestilence is one of the big pictures of widespread death via disease. Goes on and says, mourning. Penthos means stricken with grief. That that the judgments are going to be such that people are going to be just grieving, 
hurting deeply and, and scared in terms of what is happening in the world around them. Thamos, limos, lack of food and subsequent widespread hunger. And you know, things get really intense when people experience starvation. Things begin to fall apart in terms of the social constructs all around us. And then ultimately fire, which is really, it's the word per, which in the Greek conveys the idea of severe trials and severe tribulations. God says these are coming to her. These are coming to those who refuse to repent, who became a place of demons, of unclean birds. And he says, come out of her, my people. It's not for you. These judgments are not intended for you. Come out so that you can actually escape the wrath I'm pouring out on a nation that's become a Babylon. So he goes on through verses 9 through 18 and talks, or 9 through 19, and he talks about all those nations that are watching the fall of a superpower that they became wealthy from. And they're all weeping over that, and they're all frightened that that might come to them, the judgments might come to their, their nations as well. But what's happening is all of their wealth is beginning to vanish too because everything is tied into the superpower, Babylon. I'm telling you right now, if our nation falls, and it's already falling, it's falling. Now, if it falls, though, in terms of like what previous uh, uh, nations have experienced, the entire globe will shake and unravel because the wealth of the nations are tied into this superpower. Yeah, so, you know, a lot is at stake. This is a global uh, context today. And this is what we're reading in the book of Revelation, that this becomes a global issue towards the end of the age. Revelations 18.20, God says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So we endure suffering, hardship, persecution. We endure that, right? Sometimes for generations. But ultimately, God says, I'm going to come, and when I do, I'm going to deal out retribution for those who touched on my bride. Jesus even says that. The Spirit of Jesus, and I forget which, which epistle it is, uh, describes that very thing. That he comes out, when he comes back, he's going to deal out retribution to those in this world who touched on his bride. He loves his bride. He watches over his bride. And woe to those who touch on his bride. God says, I'm going to come, I'm going to pronounce judgment, and I'm going to execute it on your behalf, on behalf of those who were shaken and traumatized for believing in my son and walking in my ways. I will come and I will pay her back. So she'll be brought down, according to this passage, with great violence, with fierce and terrifying judgments, filled with indescribable pain, torment, and madness. Why? Because the world hated God, hated his son, hated his ways, and then persecuted his people. And God says, that's why I bring judgment. I know that's not very encouraging. I mean, I never teach on the book of Revelation for that very reason. I try to stay positive. I'm kind of, you know, I want to be the... Uh, the, the Hebraic Joel Olstein. I just want to bless you and, and encourage you. 
But we have to deal with these other aspects of who God is. He's not just a God of love. He's a judge, a righteous judge. He's a savior, but he's also a judge. And he loves his people. And he's going to come and sweep out unrepented wickedness in the world around us. Let me go down to the end of the passage and, and, and pick up part of the description of what this superpower ultimately did. Verse 23, he says, uh, part of the reasons I bring this, these judgments is your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. You deceived the nations. You, the superpower, with all your influence, you deceived the nations with your sorcery. Here's Mounce's Greek Dictionary, one of the most accepted, widely used dictionaries that we have today in the church. Sorcery. The Greek word is pharmakia. Here's the actual definition. Here's the actual Greek dection, uh, uh, definition from a Greek lexicon. The employment of drugs for any purpose. Now, we translate that sorcery because sorcery can be one of those applications. But that's one of the nuances. The primary definition is this, the employment of drugs for any purpose. Now, I want to say right away, you know, the proper use of drugs is a good thing. You know, uh, antibiotics, good thing. Opioids in their proper place, a good thing. Anyone ever had surgery? Oh, my gosh, I thank God for Percocet. When used in the appropriate place and, and, and reason and so forth, it's a good thing. But the abuse of that is a very bad thing. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. From this Greek word, pharmakia, is where we derive our English words, pharmacy, the place where drugs are made, pharmacist, the one who makes the drugs, pharmacology, the study of drugs. Pharmaceutical, a drug used in the treatment of disease, you know, like a vaccine. That's a pharmaceutical. Let me say this again. I am pro-choice when it comes to vaccines. I am not anti-vax. I am pro-choice when it comes to vaccines. What I'm against is mandating vaccines, mandating pharmaceuticals. That's what I stand against. So please don't twist my words and say, oh, he's against drugs. No, I'm against the abuse of drugs. And mandating drugs is government's abuse of their power. Now let me give you some possible interpretations of this passage. Let's look at it again. Your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived. Slide 45. All the nations were deceived by your pharmakia. That's the actual Greek word, right? Let's read that again. Do a little bit more work with it. Your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by the implementation of your pharmaceuticals. Let's go again. Your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by the implementation of your drugs. I I can make it more pointed, but we're already nervous, right? So let's just jump down to our application, if you will. Let's just jump, jump, jump down there for a moment. Let's make some application. Is a vaccine by 
very definition, a pharmaceutical? Yes. Is the COVID-19 vaccine currently an experimental pharmaceutical? It is. It's experimental. But I'm pro-choice. So if someone wants to take an experimental vaccine, they have a right to do that. It's their body. My body, my choice. Your body, your choice. It's okay. I have no problem with that. In fact, in certain contexts, I might take that vaccine. I'm not against the COVID-19 vaccine. What I am against is the mandate of any vaccine, but especially mandating experimental medicines that no one really knows what the actual side effects will be long-term. Is the world in general coercing and even mandating that their citizens take the vaccine? And for what? For what are they taking it for? for taking it for a... Taking it for what? A growing number of our representatives, leaders, medical professionals are saying is a man-made gain of function virus. And if that's true, and I believe it is, the evidence is growing, growing, growing. The truth is coming to the top. Just like cream rises, the truth rises. These elites make a virus that just traumatizes the masses of people in every country. Death everywhere. And then they turn around with an experimental vaccine that they make billions and billions of dollars off to manage the suffering. That is truly and profoundly an evil. And every government that's involved in that is borderline becoming fast a Babylon. So what can we do? We as the people of God need to stand our ground, be a light to the nations, side with God, walk in his ways, and resist to bow to the tyranny around us. It's your body, your choice. Don't you compromise. The greatest gift anyone can ever possess is their own body. It's your personal private property. It doesn't belong to the government. It doesn't belong to your doctor. It doesn't belong to your religious leader. It's yours. Yours. Think about what's going on, people. You need to think through this. Think through it. Think for yourself. Ask God to help you. We need to stand up and tell everyone, look, medical choice and medical liberty is an inalienable right. Take the vaccine if you want. Don't take it if you don't want. But let's all stand together and say, it's our choice. Not the governments, not the doctors, not religious leaders. It's our choice. And we need to stand on that, speak that, come what may. Number two, I want to try to do my part and help you with exemption forms. 
So we have exemptions forms for your workplaces, and it's based on religious exemptions, okay? These are based on religious exemptions. Now, here's the bad news. This happened the last year and a half. We have forever in place what's called a religious exemption based on religious beliefs that are opposed to vaccines. Our courts have always recognized it. Our government has always recognized it. Our schools have always recognized it. And about a year ago in Colorado and many other places, by the way, they said, let's remove the religious exemption, create a new category called non-medical exemptions, and we'll just place it under that. We said, no, 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 don't you touch that. No, we want the word religious belief in there as an exemption. Don't you do that. We went, we went to the Capitol. I was there. Many of you were there. And then COVID hit, and they did a bunch of things behind the scene, and bada boom, bada bing, all the forms are changed, and the religious exception exemption is gone you have a non-medical exemption now I, I could read it to you in fact i got it right here i got it right here this is for schools let me give you the one for so so the one for the schools it has a non-medical exemption so if you want a non-medical exemption like what a religious exemption yeah that's not medical religion is not medicine so that's where it would fall your religious exception now falls under the non-medical exemption. Guess who has to sign that so you can have your religious exemption? A medical doctor who is not a specialist in religion. That's not his training. Why does he sign that? No, that should be your religious leader. Why did they do that? People, I'm telling you right now, a whole lot of things are coming down. This system is becoming a Babylon, and you, we better wake up. We better wake up. Now, down below, you can go to this online education module completion deal, and you don't need a doctor. You just have to watch about an hour of very, very biased information designed to scare you in to getting a vaccine. But you know what? If you watch it, you don't need a medical doctor to sign it, and you can still get your, exception, your, your exemption. So I encourage you with the schools, that's what you now have to use, thanks to our leaders stripping us of our historic inalienable rights to medical choice when it comes to these kind of issues. Now, the other one is a, uh, a certificate of non-medical exemption for COVID-19 vaccines, and this should work with some of your employers. Um, you know, you just, you know, you, you just got to fight for it. But if you fill this out, I sign it, you're going to have a lot more weight taking that to your employer saying, please, would you accommodate my religious opposition? And there is a chance that your employer, because of this document, will accommodate you. So I'm going to have these in the back. I'll be in the coffee bar. And anyone that needs one can come back and get a signed copy. You fill it out. You take it into your employer. And, and that may be enough for your employer to give you a special accommodation under religious uh, opposition. So... Uh, we'll do our best, uh, but that's what we're going to do. And then we're going to talk about this in the weeks and months ahead about what we need to be doing to prepare ourselves for all that's coming down. I believe there's going to be more shutdowns. I believe they're going to be far more oppressive than they were in 2020. And I believe that ultimately God's going to move and then he's going to deal some things out to, to our elites who think they can just get away with everything. And so to navigate through all of this, you're going to need to be a part of a community that's helping you prepare for it. We're one of those communities. So we're gonna do our best to work together 
and brainstorm and pray and come up with some ideas of how, as a community, to survive and thrive in the midst of a Babylon and also judgments of God coming against her. And together, I believe we'll make it. Amen? Amen. All right. Praise God. That's it. I'll be in the back of the coffee bar in just a few minutes. Uh, but I've got some other information, too, that I need to cover really quick. Uh, very important announcement. We've been talking about this uh, in the past, and I need to just update everyone with our ongoing challenges as a faith community. As you know, we have not recovered from the highly oppressive government shutdowns in 2020. We lost about half of our, our people. They were scattered because of all of the fear-mongering from our government and they have not returned. There are people that have just not returned because they're in fear that they're going to you know, somehow be exposed and, and maybe even die if they get sick. And so as a result, many faith communities are super struggling. We are. We have never recovered. We're about half our size, and that means half our giving, and that is a problem for us. And so as a result, we have had to make some pretty big budget cuts. So I want you to think about this for a moment. We're half our size. And at that size, only about 15 to 20% of our community actually brings in the whole tithe to this community. 85% of our people, 80 to 85% of our people are not tithing, are not tithing. And I understand the fears and I can't pay my bills and God won't bless me anyway and all this stuff. I've been there. I've been tithing for 40 years. I was in the workforce for 20 years, blue-collar worker. I know, I, I do this. I would never ask you to do anything that I have not done myself. But as a result of the downturn in attendance and the fact that many of us are not tithing, we have made our first wave of budget cuts, which includes shutting down our worship team and letting our worship coordinator, Alexia Formby, go. So that's the, one of our shutdowns. Along with those budget cuts, we have two full-time staff members, Pastor Chris and Pastor Josh, who are also... Is the live streaming off? Yes. Is that yes? Yes, it is. Okay. Who are also looking for other employment. Because really, the cuts we have to make are pretty deep in order to survive. Suffice it to say, we as a faith community, we're in a pretty big battle for our own existence in the midst of all these shutdowns. What's the answer? Uh, if the other 85% that attend here on a regular basis of the other 85% would bring in the whole tithe, 10% of their income that belongs to God, if they would step up and do that, we could weather this storm. We could weather this storm. It takes money to sustain the church of Messiah. God does that through the tithe. That's how he funds his son's church. When God's people do not tithe, the church suffers defeat and is diminished. And God's people come under various curses for their disobedience to the tithe. He told his own people, you're stealing from me, you're robbing. When you withhold the tithe, 
You're stealing and robbing from me. The whole nation of you, you're under a curse. Why live under a curse? God doesn't want that. God's saying, no, 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 no. Give me the tithe. Prove me. Test me in this. I will bless you. It'll overwhelm you. Overwhelm you. And it's the tithe that sustains the church, which in turn meets your spiritual needs and stands as a bulwark against Babylon in those times in which she asserts herself and tries to assault you and your families. I want to challenge you and encourage you, every, every one of us, to step up now more than ever and obey the Lord in the area of the tithe so we can see ourselves through this storm. The liberals give all kinds of money to their political parties, to their unions, to their agendas. The pagans tithe to their gods and their places of worship. And God's people are called to tithe to his church, to sustain his agenda so that it can move forward in the earth today. So I want to encourage you, please step up, help us to do this, because we are really in a battle for our own existence. I promise you this, that as you step out in faith, and you give the whole tithe to your community, 10%. I promise you this. I promise you, your only regret is that you didn't do it earlier. You will come and say, oh my gosh, the blessings are so intense, they're so great. Thank you, Pastor. I wish I would have done this years ago, years ago, years ago. Because when you do that, God not only reverses the curse and brings the blessing, he rebukes the devourer on your behalf. I want to encourage you to do that. I usually, I usually don't make this strong of an appeal for this, but our community, we're on the brink of some pretty, pretty big setbacks. I'm not sure where that ends up, but I know this much, reading the Torah, when the people failed to tithe, the priests left and went and got jobs, and then there was no spiritual covering, no teaching, which results in blessing and liberty for the people. And then when they cried out and they called on God's name, God says, you want to come back to me? This is how you come back. Pay your tithes. That's what you do. You pay your tithes. Don't say, I'm sorry. Just pay your tithes. Because if you do, the priest will come back. And if the priest will come back, through them, I'll bless you again. That's how it works. We need your help. To those, the 15% that have tithed for years, thank you. You have helped sustain the harvest, which has been a beautiful blessing to so many people. Thank you for your faithfulness in your giving. And now I pray that all of us will join together and step up and see our community through so that we can win the lost and give hope to the world around us as we become that light in a very dark time in our nation's history. I believe we'll rise up again and become that light that we're called to be.